0: shift show. Well, I'm recording this podcast on Saturday morning. I would have liked to have done one earlier in the week, but I was down in Dallas and didn't have uh, a lot of free time. I was at the money show down there, and uh, so I didn't really have a chance to comment. We had the jobs data that came out on Friday, so I wanted to get to it, but I just figured I'd wait till I get back to my studio, it's a lot easier uh, to do that. You know. By the way, my next conference that I'm going to be going to is the New Orleans conference, uh, which is going to be October 25th to the 28th. So in about three weeks or so, if you haven't signed up to attend, you really need to go to this conference. It is probably my favorite conference, and that I really like the people who attend it. Uh, the speakers, in particular, there's a lot of really, really. A good guys down there that I've been following for a long time myself, before people started following me. You know, they've been doing this conference now for 43 years. I think it is the longest standing annual investment conference in the nation, started by Jim Blanchard. It's always kind of been like a gold conference, but it gets a lot more, it goes a lot Uh, further than just gold you know by the way the one year they didn't have the conference was 2005 because of hurricane katrina apparently another hurricane is about to hit new orleans this is hurricane nate it's supposed to hit i think late saturday night early sunday morning this one is just a category one at least that's what they're projecting remember though i mean hurricane maria was a category one and then it escalated to a category five very, very quickly. Now, it doesn't seem that this is going to happen with Nate, uh, but you never know. But if it does hit as a Category 1, Katrina was a Category 3. So there's a big difference there between a 3 and a 1. I mean, a 1 could do some damage, but I don't think it will be uh, significant enough to cancel the New Orleans conference that's happening you know, two to three weeks later like what happened with Katrina. And, of course, they've rebuilt those levees down there in New Orleans, uh, so they should be able to withstand a Category 1 hurricane if they were built in the aftermath of Katrina and they were meant uh, to try to withstand something at least as bad as Katrina, if uh, if not worse. So if you haven't already signed up, go to the website, the New Orleans Conference website, sign up, use my code. You get a discount if you mention Peter Schiff. I think you can use the code Peter or Schiff. I think either one is going to work for me. And then I get credit. I think there's a contest going on. I think the person who refers the most people uh, gets a gold coin. I, I'm like in sixth place right now. So for some reason, a lot of my people aren't signing up. Or if they're signing up, they're at least uh, not using uh, my code. So uh, I gotta, we got to step it up if I want to get that, that gold coin. But I really, more importantly, want to have more people down there at the conference. It's a great conference. It's a great city. If you haven't been there, you'll love the city. You got the jazz, you got the food, and I'll be down there uh, with my family. My brother's going to be down there. I got a couple of reps. I'm bringing my wife. I'm bringing both my, my younger kids. So it's, you know, it's a good chance to, to hang out with uh, the Schiff family and uh, a lot of other good speakers while you're listening to jazz and eating some fantastic food uh, down in New Orleans. So be prepared to gain a little weight. Maybe go on a diet before you get down there. So you won 't feel as guilty about the food that you 're going to eat while you are in uh, New Orleans, also, I have posted on my YouTube channel the talk that I gave at the uh, cryptocurrency conference in uh, in, in uh, Aspen a couple of weeks ago, and i 'm about to post the debate that I had with Max Kaiser. A lot of people have been saying, "Hey, can we see that debate you had? the cryptocurrency debate?" with Max Kaiser, So that's there too. That's coming up. So you can uh, check those out on on my YouTube channel. They do generally post the money shows, but they're not on YouTube. You got to go to the money show website. I think you got to sign up somewhere. They do archive all their talks. If anybody wants to listen to the talk that I gave uh, at the money show, it's not going to be on my YouTube channel, but it is on the money show website. There's a way to sign up. I don't think you have to pay for it. I'm not sure. You might have to just give them uh, some information, your email or something, uh, but uh, then you can listen to that. But again, you want to hear me live, come down to New Orleans because that is the last conference that I am attending this year. I've been invited to some others, but I just don't have the time uh, to travel some internationally. Just, uh, but I'd love to go to this one, so I will, I will be there. I want to start talking, though, about the jobs data. That came out on Friday because, you know, everybody had pretty much written off this report. They were saying, well, it's going to be weak because of the hurricanes. And so even if it is weak, it's not going to matter. Right. So they had already decided that no matter how bad the report was, that they could just ignore it. But it still ended up being a lot worse than they thought, because even though people thought it was going to be bad, no one thought it was going to be this bad. I mean, people still thought, We'd get like 100,000 jobs. I think that was the consensus. Some people thought as high as 140,000 jobs. Nobody thought we would lose jobs, and we lost 33,000 jobs. I mean, this is the first time we've lost jobs, I don't know, in five years or six. Forget the last time we had a negative non-farm payroll print. But no one cared, right? It was a freebie, right? They could have a bad number, so we got a bad number. But it's actually worse When you factor in the revisions, even though they revised last month's up from 156 to 169, they revised the prior month down by about 50,000 jobs. That's a big drop. So 35,000 approximately fewer jobs in the last couple of months. So that really brings down the three-month job creation average. Now, there's some weird quirks in this report. The unemployment rate dropped to 4.2%. How is that? How the unemployment rate go down? We lost jobs. Didn't the people who lost their jobs file for unemployment? Well, maybe the hurricane stopped people from filing. Maybe they lost their jobs, but they couldn't get down to the unemployment office. Maybe that's why. Private sector payrolls. There, a bigger loss. 40,000 jobs lost. They were expecting a gain. A gain of 117,000 jobs. That was the weak report they were expecting. And instead, it was a loss. Manufacturing lost 1,000 jobs. Here's another weird statistic. The labor force participation rate, which was 62.9 last month, was expected to drop to 62.8, jumped up to 63.1. That's the highest labor force participation rate, I don't know, at least a year. I I don't remember how long it's been since we've seen a 63 handle. How is that possible? How do we have all these people that are in the labor force in the month of September that were not in the labor force in the month of August when there are 33,000 fewer jobs in September than August. If we lost jobs, how is it possible that more people are now in the labor force? Well, I mean, maybe they're in the labor force and unemployed, but that doesn't make sense either because the unemployment rate dropped from 4.4 to 4.2. So none of that makes any sense to me, which is one of the reasons that you gotta take these numbers with a grain of salt when they seem to be so inconsistent just within themselves. Also, average hourly earnings shot up 0.5%. Uh, last month was revised from up 0.1 to up 0.2. They were expecting up 0.3, yet it had a jump of up 0.5. Although I did read this article up on Zero Hedge. I put it on my Facebook page about some kind of quirk in there, or some kind of manipulation that may have produced uh, that big gain in the, the number. But you know, initially, it was that 0.5% increase in average hourly earnings that sent the dollar up and gold down, right? That was the initial reaction of this report. Even though 33,000 jobs were lost, much weaker than expected, nobody cared again because they were pre-blaming it on the weather, right, the hurricane. But when they saw that uh, the wage number, that really had an impact on the dollar and gold and the dollar index shot up and made a new high for this move. Uh, But then in fact, sold off and closed negative on the day. So it ended up being a reversal in the dollar, a technical reversal by taking out the high, but then selling off and closing down on the day. The opposite thing happened with gold. Gold initially sold off about six, seven bucks and then closed up about eight or nine bucks. So about a $15 swing, we took out the low for the move and closed higher. So we had a positive reversal in gold and we had a negative reversal in dollars. So, and that makes sense, right? We, you know, because they're both kind of the opposite side of the uh, the same seesaw. Stock market in general was higher on the day. The Dow did finish off uh, just under two points, but I think that Nasdaq was at a new record high. Uh, you know, S and P markets continued to move up a uh, day after day. It's almost like a melt up at this point. Of optimism and enthusiasm, despite the the enormity of the problems that everybody wants to sweep under this rug, and the rug, believe me, is you know, got a mountain of stuff already underneath it. I think the newest catalyst that is fueling the euphoria is the anticipation of these tax cuts that are coming, right? Not even really tax reform, but tax cuts. The Republicans, the Senate at least, passed the budget. During the week, $4.1 trillion of government spending, Um, obviously a lot of it borrowed money. Uh, Apparently there are some cuts in domestic spending, but not nearly enough to offset the big increases that we're getting in defense spending and of course the automatic increases that we get in entitlement. So really no cuts to speak of, more government, bigger deficits, yet somehow this paves the way for tax cuts. It shouldn't. Bigger government paves the way for tax hikes, even if the government wants to pretend there are tax cuts. You know, I had a debate when I was at the Money Show in Dallas, and I was on a panel. Mark Skousen was the mediator of the panel, and um, one of the people on the panel was Steve Forbes, and he had just finished speaking right before, so he gave a standalone speech Right before this panel. And then so I made some references during the panel and got into a bit of an argument with Steve Forbes. And you know, I don't often disagree with Steve Forbes. I mean, Steve Forbes was actually one of the few people that publicly endorsed me when I ran for Senate in 2010. I mean, not that many people did that. And he came out and endorsed me and he did a mailing uh, on endorsing me for, for U.S. Senate. But what Steve said in his speech, and he was really mad at the Republicans for talking about tax reform. He said, forget about reform, just call it a cut, give everybody a cut, tax cuts for everybody, make sure they're retroactive to January 1st, let everybody get a raise, let the public know if they support Republicans, they're going to get more money, they're going to have a bigger paycheck, right, they're going to get a raise, they're going to pay lower taxes, and he was all excited about how important it is that we just cut taxes, and that we have to forget about trying to pay for the tax cuts, or talk about how we need tax hikes Cover the tax cuts. It's all nonsense. We just cut taxes across the board for everybody, and it's going to be great. And of course, I started to argue with Steve Forbes that this is not true, that this is the Republican version of a free lunch, right? The Democrats like to promise free stuff, which is stuff from the government. Well, the Republicans want to promise free tax cuts. What's a free tax cut? That's a tax cut that happens even though you don't reduce government spending. The point I made to Steve and the audience was that the cost of government is not measured by what it taxes, but by what it spends. And so if the government is spending money, then there is a cost associated with that. Whether or not we pay for that through taxation, we're still going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it through more debt through more inflation, and ultimately higher taxes in the future to not only repay the debt, but to pay the interest on the money that we borrowed to finance the tax cuts. So cutting taxes, but borrowing and printing the difference is worse. I would rather pay for government with taxes than debt and inflation and higher taxes in the future. That's the argument that I made. And another thing that I challenged Steve Forbes, I said, Steve, If the Republicans are going to tell their constituents that they can get tax cuts even if government spending continues to grow, then how do they have the political ability to generate the swell of public opinion to shrink government? See, what I want the Republicans to do is make it all about less government. I want the Republicans to say, you've got a choice. You can have big government and high taxes, or you can have small government and low taxes. That's it. You can't have big government and low taxes. That's what the Republicans want to sell. That's what Steve Forbes was advocating. But I don't like that because if people think they can have their cake and eat it too, then that's what they're going to want. But if you put it in those terms, hey, you want lower taxes? We need less government. Right? If you want to pay less for government, then government has to do less. Government has to cost less. So, yes, you can have a big tax cut, you can have more take-home pay, but these are the government programs we need to eliminate to make that possible. These are the agencies that we have to get rid of. These are the entitlements that we have to cut. And maybe if you do it that way, you'll be able to generate some support for cutting government spending if people realize that there is a reward for that, that there is something to look forward to, Right? You cut the government spending, and then you get the tax cuts. See, Steve Forbes is like, no, let's give them the tax cuts first. Well, if we get the tax cuts first, we're never going to get the spending. It's like, you know, I've got young kids. They want dessert. You want your dessert? Eat your dinner. Eat your dinner. Then you get your dessert. If I just say, okay, here's a dessert first, they're never going to eat their dinner. They only eat the dinner as a means to get to the ends. They want the dessert, so they have to eat the dinner first, right? So you can't tell the public you can have your tax cuts first and then we'll cut spending later because we're never going to get the cuts. You got to say, "Hey, the tax cuts are contingent on the spending cuts. Let's cut spending and then if we do that, we can cut taxes." So I had this argument with Steve Forbes and but this is what's going on with the Republicans today. They're trying to sell this tax cut, but the markets are all excited about it. And apparently, too, now that they've passed this budget or in the process of passing it, now they can supposedly enact these tax cuts based on a simple majority. So this this budget passing was seen as a milestone, right, on the road to these tax cuts, which the market is celebrating because, yes, you know, taxes are going to go down on corporations. Taxes are going to go down on pass-throughs. And so obviously the upper income people are going to have some tax cuts if this thing goes through, at least initially. But you know what? The market already rallied on this. We've been rallying on tax cuts ever since... The day after Trump was elected, this story has been driving the market. How long can the market rally on the exact same news, right? When is it buy the rumor, sell the fact? Because these rumors have been going on and on and on. You would assume that we're going to sell before the fact. I mean, we've been rallying on this rumor over and over again. We've got sky high valuations. And of course, it's not all the stocks that are rising. I think still the majority of stocks in the S&P 500 are falling. They're not going up. You just have a handful of overpriced stocks that everybody is buying. And of course, everybody is buying these ETFs now. People are just mindlessly and robotically plowing their money into what everybody else is doing. And so it's those stocks, the, the no thinking, momentum, must own type, nifty 50 type stocks, right? They're the one decision stock. You never have to worry about when to sell it. The only decision is when to buy. And of course, when the time to buy is whenever you got money. Right. This is, you know, we've had this in every bubble uh, that we've ever experienced. And certainly this one is is no different. And of course, this is the biggest bubble that the Federal Reserve has ever inflated. And, you know, the problem is the last two bubbles had popped and we had the stock market drop by 50 percent twice. Right. Uh, During the last uh, 15 years or so or this this uh, century right? In 2001, the market was cut in half. And in 2008, the market was cut in half. The problem is the Federal Reserve was able to bail the market out by blowing up an even bigger bubble. So now people are conditioned. They don't even care if the market goes down because they know the Fed is going to prop it back up again. I mean, so the the markets, with, when I talk about The market being overvalued, then people say, well, look, you know, the Dow's at 22,000. So who cares, right? I mean, yes, it went down in 2001. It went down in 2008. But if you wrote it out, who cares because it's 22,000? Well, first of all, let's assume that the Dow gets cut in half again. Do you really want to ride it down to 11,000? What if the Dow keeps rising? What if it goes to 30,000 and then gets cut in half? That's 15,000. That's still way below where we are now. So if you're not worried, if you think, hey, if the market gets cut in half, the Fed's going to prop it back up again, get out now, wait till it halves from wherever it halves, and then buy back in if you're so confident uh, that the Fed is going to blow it out. But I can tell you from experience, a lot of people lose confidence at the lows. It's very easy to say you're going to ride out the move, and then the market gets cut in half, and believe me, at the bottom, no one thinks it's the bottom. People think it's going to keep falling. So a lot of people didn't ride it out. A lot of people did get out near the lows, and who knows when they got back in. Maybe they're getting back in now. But it's easier said than done. But in my opinion, the third time is not going to be the charm. I think it's three strikes and you're out. I don't think there's another bubble that the Fed's got up its sleeves. I think this is the last one. I think they're out of air to inflate bubbles. Because every time a bubble pops, they need to create a bigger one to replace it. Well, there is no bigger bubble to replace this one. This is the mother of all bubbles. There has never been a bubble this big, right? Look at how much air was required to inflate it. 0% interest rates for eight years, three rounds of quantitative easing. The bubble that created the housing bubble, right? And that caused the 2008 financial crisis, that only had interest rates at 1% for a year and a half. And then it took another year and a half to raise them back up to 5%. So the amount of air that went into that bubble was tiny, right? Compared to the hurricane worth of air, that the, the Fed blew into this bubble, yet that last bubble was so ba- big that when it popped, we almost had uh, a wor- the worst uh, collapse since the Great Depression, or we did have. They said it was going to be worse than the Great Depression had the government not come to our aid, had the government not bail us out. So if the government did that much damage to the economy... With 1% rates for, you know, a few years, imagine how much more damage was done. Imagine the enormity of the mistakes that have been made this time. Because remember, the, re- the recession is when the market fixes the problem. It corrects the mistakes that are made during the boom, during the bubble. And the bigger the bubble, the more the mistakes, uh, the more the market has to correct. And the more difficult it is to go through that period. So what we're heading for is going to be the worst of all. And so I wouldn't be so sure that, the Fed is going to be able to blow an even bigger bubble uh, to uh, bail the economy and the markets and investors out. In fact, this bubble is likely too big to pop. That's the one thing. Maybe the Fed is so worried about this bubble that they can't let it pop, in which case the dollar collapses instead. And in real terms, the damage to the market is even greater. The loss of purchasing power is greater if we end up sacrificing the dollar because we're too afraid of letting the air come out of the bubble. Because if it does, again, it's going to dwarf the 2008 financial crisis, right? It'll make that one look like a sun shower compared to the hurricane, the Cat 5 hurricane that we're going to get if the air ever comes out of this bubble. Because believe me, the mistakes that have been made are absolutely enormous compared to the mistakes that were made the last time around. Also, I wanted to... Comment on my talk at Yale University. I went down to Yale last week, and I gave a talk about the minimum wage. And the most interesting thing about it, and I was, it was, it was the Yale Political uh, Union that had hosted it, and I talked about the minimum wage uh, for I don't know, forty-five minutes or so, maybe even an hour. I was supposed to talk for a half hour, but I think I, I think I just got carried away. But anyway, when I was done talking. Uh, they had a number of people, that would, a number of students that came up with talks, and they spoke for a few minutes each, either opposing me or agreeing with me. And one of the, one of the things that really uh, you know, interested me is pretty much everybody at Yale who opposed what I said. And I, I basically, I, I said we should abolish the minimum wage. So if you oppose what I was saying, then you didn't want to get rid of the minimum wage. And just about every kid that opposed me did so from the perspective of a socialist or an outright communist or Marxist. I mean, not only were they criticizing um, the, the free market or, or my uh, willingness to get rid of the minimum wage, they were completely critical of capitalism in general and actually advocating outright socialism that not only should the government set wages, but that they should set prices, that they should control the economy. I mean, it's amazing, these kids are going to Yale. I mean, these are some of the smartest kids in the country and they believe some of the dumbest things that you could possibly believe. I mean, how can anybody believe in communism yet they were advocating for it? You know, I mean, the Soviet Union was communist, it collapsed, look at Cuba, look what happened to uh, East Germany. I mean, it's gone. I mean, these things imploded. I mean, the countries that were communist did horrible. Look at the difference between uh, North Korea and South Korea. I mean, anytime you take a culture and divide it in two, and one is communist and one is, you know, free, it's, the, uh, the difference is striking and obvious. Yet these Yale students still believe in, uh, in communism. I and mean, that's because a lot of their professors, professors at Yale, believe in communism. What was uh, refreshing, at least, was the number of Yale students who not only wanted to lower the minimum wage, but wanted to completely abolish it. So there were a lot of people there that agreed with me uh, that we should abolish the minimum wage. And so at the end of my talk and the various debates, they asked for a show of hands, you know, how many people agree that we should abolish the minimum wage and how many people disagree. And it was almost split, but it was slightly... Uh, more people that wanted to uh, keep the minimum wage. So I didn't didn't win in that respect. I think it was about maybe 52% disagreed with me and maybe 48% agreed with me. So it was pretty close. Uh, But I then asked my own question. And I basically said, did anybody change their mind? Did anybody who showed up here today, was there anybody who was in favor of the minimum wage? And as a result of listening to what I had to say, Did anybody change their mind and now they're against it and not a single hand went up, which is very disappointing that, you know, you can't even be effective. I mean, people are coming in with such a closed mind that they're not even willing to accept the fact that what they believe is incorrect, because I think I did a very, very good job of arguing why the minimum wage was bad. And all of my arguments were from the perspective of the worker. I never tried to argue for the employer, except when I talked about how the minimum wage favors big employers over small employers, because they have the money to invest in labor-saving devices, and they can therefore automate and use machines, and they can out-compete the smaller companies who can't afford to do that, and so they end up going out of business, and so that the minimum wage law, I said, protects big businesses who can automate and fire workers from smaller companies who have no choice but to hire human beings. And when the human beings are made uncompetitive by higher minimum wages, they go out of business. And I said that's one of the reasons that so many of these big companies support the minimum wage because they know they have the resources to fire their workers and stay in business. And they know the smaller competitors don't. But other than that, all the arguments I made were from the individual perspective of the worker, workers' rights, workers' opportunity. I made it a civil rights issue that individuals should have the right to accept any job that they can get if they decide and, and like it, if they agree with it, if they want it. And the government should not interpose their judgment. They should not determine that a job is not good enough, doesn't pay enough. If an individual believes that that's a job that they like, if it's the best job that they can get, it, it shouldn't be up to the government to tell them that they can't have it. There is no uh, government authority to pass a law that makes it illegal for people to work for people to have jobs. I mean, you're, you know, you're legislating poverty. I said, look, if you believe in anti-poverty programs, that's a different debate. If you want to have some other kind of government role in fighting poverty, you can do it. Uh, but don't use the minimum wage as an anti-poverty tool because it doesn't work. It backfires. It creates poverty. It perpetuates poverty. So I did a very, very good job, but I couldn't persuade anybody. Not a single person uh, had their mind opened. Because they were so closed. Because it's, so, it's all political ideology, right? You can't accept. Nobody wants to accept for a minute that they're wrong uh, about the minimum wage. Because I guess if they would accept that, then they would open up a Pandora's box about what else am I wrong about? Hey, if the minimum wage is actually bad, then what, what about all the other stuff I believe? Maybe I'm wrong about everything. So it's almost maybe like this wall of cognitive dissonance that they have to build up to protect themselves, to shield themselves from reality so they can still go about life as a member of this liberal cult, right? Because they can't have any actual reason or rational thoughts enter into their brain. Because there's no way anybody that has any amount of reason can be in favor of the minimum wage. There is simply no way around it. You have to throw uh, all reason out. I mean, these guys were saying how well supply and demand doesn't apply to wages. Why not? It's a price The price of labor is a price like any other price. Supply and demand is a law. It's not a suggestion. So you have to completely disregard the law. You've got to come up with all kinds of nonsense theories that are totally unsupported by fact in order to believe this stuff. But people have to believe it because they have to advance this agenda of big government, of socialism, and they have to condemn the free market every way they can and I remember you know, a lot of, one of these kids was talking about how it's not fair that employers just get to decide everybody's wages. The employer doesn't decide. The market decides. The wages reflect the market. If employers could decide wages, everybody would make the minimum wage. Nobody would be paid more. But the employers can't decide. The market decides. And what really rules is your productivity. Ultimately, it's the productivity of the worker that determines what he's going to get paid in the market. People have said, well, it's not fair that employers pick the market, so the wage, so the government should pick it. That's what's not fair. The only thing that's fair is the free market. The free market is fair when government decides a wage and imposes it on people. When the government says, this is the wage you must pay, this is the wage you must be able to command. If you can't get a job at that wage, then you can't work. That's what's unfair. It's these arbitrary prices that are that are you know handed down by government that are unfair. What's fair is what happens in the free market because free is fair, right? It's, it's People are, uh, are, are negotiating freely among each other and there's a market that determines a rate. But in any event, disappointed in the fact that uh, I wasn't able to change any minds. Oh, one, one last thought I wanted to mention. I did get an email from somebody who told me that they weren't going to listen to my podcast anymore. They were very upset at the fact that I lended credibility to the NFL boycott. I said that people were not watching the NFL games and my wife didn't want to watch them, so I hadn't watched the NFL. Uh, And I still haven't seen a game, you know, and I'm normally a pretty big fan. I haven't watched a a football game uh, thus far this year. And um, so they were saying, look, this is not right. You know, this is, I I can't believe you're against free speech. Uh, This is terrible. And so I'm not going to listen to your Podcast anymore, I'm done. I've been listening for a long time, but you know, I'm not gonna listen anymore. So I thought it was ironic or hypocritical that he's mad that I am boycotting the NFL based on something that the player said. And so because he's mad at me for boycotting the NFL, he's gonna boycott me. He's gonna do the same thing to me that he's accusing me of doing to the NFL, which is the definition of hypocrisy. Because right? if you think I'm wrong to boycott the NFL because of something they said. Well, now you're boycotting me because of something I said. So it's, you know, I'm consistent. I said to the guy, I replied, hey, if you want to boycott me, that's your right. But I did point out to him that he was wrong in his premise. Because while I am exercising my free speech, I can say whatever I want on my podcast. When you are an NFL player, you cannot say whatever you want on the job. You know, just like, you know, I have receptionists at Europe Pacific Capital. If you call up Europe Pacific Capital, when they answer the phone, they can't start it up. They can't greet you with a political protest. They can't start telling you about all the grievances they have uh, with the U.S. government. They can't talk about, you know, feeling the burn or make America, you know, they cannot, you know, make their political statements known when they're on the time clock. When I'm paying them, they're, they're in their place of employment because when people are working for me, I get to decide what they can say and what they can't say. That's the same thing with the NFL. When you are an NFL player, you do not have the right to say whatever you want when you're on the field. When you're in uniform, when there are people who have paid to attend the game in the stadium, when people are watching at home because you've sold the broadcast rights, you are on the clock, you are on the job. That is your office. These NFL players, when they're on the field... They're at their place of business. They can't just say whatever they want. That's got nothing to do with the First Amendment. If these guys want to go and protest, uh, you know, police brutality or whatever it is, on their own time, when they're not on the field, then they're fine. You know, they can do whatever they want. That's the First Amendment. And of course, that might be between them and their sponsors, because you know there may be some contracts some moral clauses where they're being sponsored by a sports drink or shoe company where if they say something too controversial they could lose their endorsement right that's again you don't have a right you can say whatever you want but if you say something that diminishes your appeal to the mass market because if you figure you know you say something controversial you're going to piss off half the people you know that's fine if you're Peter Schiff and you're doing a podcast I don't care if I piss off half the people you know I care about the people who I don't piss off and who want to listen to my show. But if you're, you know, you've got a major consumer product, you can't lose half your market, right? You need a huge market. So obviously their spokesmen don't have the right to go out and say controversial things that are going to get their consumers angry and cause them not to want to buy their products, right? They want uh, spokesmen that are going to cause people to want to buy the product because they identify with the spokesman. If you get a bunch of people who hate the spokesman because they don't like what he's saying, then that's going to reflect badly on the product. But the point is, I am all in favor of freedom of speech. But those players don't have free speech when they're on the stadium. But you know who does have free speech? The NFL owners. They have the right to limit the political expression of their players. Now, if the owners of the NFL teams and if the NFL itself wants to allow players to demonstrate on the field that they want to allow players to protest the national anthem, protest the flag. If they want to do that, that's their right. They have every right to do that. What was pissing me off is to hear the NFL owners say, well, we we have no control over our players. It's we can't interfere with their First Amendment rights. What are you talking about? These guys, if they celebrate too much in the end zone, right, they get a penalty, right? You know, I mean, they're interfering. I mean, they interfere with the way you could tackle people. There are all kinds of rules. I think they have to tuck in their shirts, you know, and and they have to wear their uniforms. They just can't dress any way they want. I mean, the players can't do whatever they want when they're on that field. There are all sorts of rules that they have to abide by because the NFL says these are the rules. And if you don't abide by these rules, you're going to get fined. You're going to get fired. So the NFL could easily say, hey, we got a rule. You stand at the national anthem. That's the rule. Right, They can say that, they can say, if you don't want to stand at the national anthem, then, then then stay in the locker room, or but I think they're all required to be on the field for the national anthem. so if they're required to be on there, you can require them to stand right It's very easy, so I don't like the fact that these guys are lying and trying to claim that they can't control their players, they don't have any rights to limit their freedom of speech. Of course, they do. Every employer has the right to limit the freedom of speech of their workers when they're on the job. That's the nature of employment. So that part pisses me off. But if the NFL wants to take this attitude, then I I support the fans who want to take an attitude. You know, if that is your opinion, NFL, if that's what you think of our national anthem, if that's what you think of the country, if that's what you think of the flag, well, you know what? We're just not going to watch your games. We're not going to go. That's fine. That is all capitalism. Just like I said, you know, I believe that individuals should have the right to discriminate, right? So if there's a restaurant owner who is a bigot and does not like blacks and he wants to have a sign on his restaurant that says, no blacks allowed, I support that restaurant owner's right to post that sign and to only serve whites. But I also support my right to boycott that restaurant On principle, I don't want to eat in a restaurant where a guy is so bigoted that he would have a sign like that. And I have no problem with other people organizing a boycott or a protest of a racist restaurant. And that is how the free market can control racism. We don't need government to do it. So if the NFL wants to do something and if people are offended by it, then fine. Now, this particular individual is so upset that I agree with the sympathy of the people who are saying, you know, I don't like that political stance that the NFL is taking, and so I'm not going to give them my money. I am not going to uh, patronize their business because I disagree with this political stance that they chose to take. Now he's saying, oh, well, I I disagree with your political stance, so I am going to boycott you, (laughs) which, again, is the ultimate in hypocrisy. And the one thing that I really don't like, and I've said this over and over again, the one thing that pisses me off more than anything is hypocrisy.